Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Kia ora everyone, it's Mickey here. You are listening to Wikipedia and this week on the podcast I speak to Professor Iman Quigley all about irritable bowel syndrome, what we do and don't know about dietary and supplemental treatment strategies to help improve and resolve symptoms associated with it. We also discuss intestinal permeability and quote unquote leaky gut and what Professor Quigley does not love about that term, and some issues around the testing and what is reported in the literature for gut-related problems, and what these actually tell us, and subsequently how these might inform treatment. And we also talk about the gut microbiome and the importance of probiotics to support it. So it is a bit of a geeky deep dive, but you know what? Professor Eamon Quigley has done numerous talks to the public on this type of information, so he's really well versed in being able to translate science into practical tips. And I think that if you know anyone that has gut-related issues, if you are a health professional interested in the field, if you yourself have any of these issues or actually just sort of interested in it, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. So, Professor Eamon Quigley, if you are unfamiliar with him, he's a renowned gastroenterologist and is internationally known for his research on gastrointestinal motility disorders, neurogastroenterology, which is the gut-brain relationship, and the gut microbiome. He has published more than 800 peer-reviewed articles, reviews, editorials, book chapters and case reports. He is past president of the American College of Gastroenterology and the World Gastroenterology Organization. His current responsibilities include, but not limited to, the David M. Underwood Chair of Medicine and Digestive Disorders, Head of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Houston Methodist Hospital, and Professor of Medicine at both the Institute of Academic Medicine and Wild Cornwall Medical College. I'll put a link in the show notes to sort of more bio information to Dr. Eamon Quigley. And before we kick on into the podcast team, I'd just love to remind you the best way to support us is to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And um, if there's room to leave a five-star review because that way the information that you're receiving is made much more available to other people who are just searching the interwebs for podcasts to listen to. Of course, tell a mate as well. You know, word of mouth is one of the other best ways to support us. So please enjoy this conversation that I have with Professor Quigley. Professor Quigley, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today all about irritable bowel, IBD, probiotics, a whole host of, of um, topics which you are an expert in. And as I understand it, you're a clinician and a researcher. So right. can we sort of kick off with you just giving us a little bit of a background on, on your background? Okay, so um, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm Irish originally. 
graduated medical school in Ireland, and then completed training in internal medicine and gastroenterology in Ireland, in Scotland, and in the US. And then um, held a faculty position for 12 years in the US before going back to Ireland to my alma mater, my medical school in Cork, and then moved to Texas uh, almost 10 years ago. Um, I'm a gastroenterologist. Uh, I'm a professor of medicine. I've been actively involved primarily in clinical research in a variety of areas, including irritable bowel syndrome, gut microbiome, and probiotics for, for several years. Yeah. And as um, I came across, well, I've, I've seen your papers before, and then, of course, I was at the Metagenics Congress a couple of weeks ago, and you were talking on a couple of different topics. And um, one of the things which, uh, or one of your topics on the leaky gut, I found super interesting, actually, your perspective versus what people who, like clinicians like myself, or just people out there in the general population might understand as sort of leaky gut. So. Can we start there, potentially, and can you um, sort of describe, I suppose, um, what some of the issues are around what we think is leaky gut, but what actually is is going on? Because I feel like th this is something which a lot of people can um, obviously misconstrue. It's, it's, a it's a challenging topic. What it all hinges on is this phenomenon of gut permeability. In other words, the ability of the gut to allow certain molecules to get across and to prevent others from doing so. If this didn't happen, we would we would all starve to death because obviously nutrients, electrolytes, etc., have to gain access to to the to the body, uh, otherwise we couldn't survive. So the gut has developed a very sophisticated system in health for allowing certain molecules to pass and others not to pass. And that's what we call permeability. Now, permeability is different in different parts of the GI tract. For example, the small intestine we would regard as fairly leaky, whereas the colon we would regard as not leaky at all. And of course, that makes sense because it's in the small intestine where we digest most of the molecules that are derived from food, like carbohydrates, as simple sugars, uh, proteins as amino acids, uh, fats, uh, etc. So that all makes sense. Now, in its strictest definition, the gut barrier, which is what controls this, is a single cell layer on the surface of, of the gut wall. But one of the points I made in my talk was that many other factors contribute to this barrier function. It may not be, strictly speaking, the barrier anatomically, but at least in terms of function. And that goes all the way from the mucus layer, which lies on top of the the epithelium to a whole variety of molecules that are produced by the gut that protect it against bacteria, et cetera. And then to, of course, the immune system and, and also a recently described barrier that lies between the blood vessels within the gut wall and the, uh, and, and, the, and, and the epithelium. So there are a variety of components there which can all contribute in one way or the other to whether a molecule, be it good or bad, gets from the lumen of the gut into the systemic circulation where yeah. it could cause problems. Yeah. So that's that's putting it in a nutshell. Now, where the problems arise is not in animal studies or laboratory studies where you can control everything and you can measure things very carefully, but in human studies. 
So obviously we can't go removing the gut from humans and putting it in an organ bath and measuring their permeability. So we have to rely on somewhat indirect methods. And the methods that are used primarily involve using molecules of different molecular size and measuring then whether they appear in the urine or not. And of course, if the gut is more leaky, you would expect to see molecules of higher molecular size, et cetera, et cetera. And that technology is well described. The problem with that technology is that measures one particular phenomenon. It measures predominantly the movement of water and electrolytes like sodium and potassium, sodium and chloride particularly, uh, and simple sugars between cells, the so-called paracellular pathway. And that's fine. Unfortunately, what it probably does not measure is whether bacteria and large molecules get through there because they're just too big to get through there. And what the, the criticism I have or the concern I have is that people take results from these sugar tests and they extrapolate them to mean that everything can get across the gut wall. That might be true because there might be, if they're damaged to the paracellular pathway, they might be damaged to other pathways, but you're not actually measuring that directly. That's my concern. So, so in other words, we're, we're going from one observation and applying it to things that may not be relevant to it. Okay. And there are a number of these commercially available stool tests and urine um, tests yes. which measure um, metabolites of, or potentially measure, or say they measure, metabolites of products related to our neurotransmitters, but also our ability to digest those carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Um, from your under, um, your obvious kind of expert position, is it possible for these tests to determine, well, one, that that's what we're seeing in the urine, and then two, that that actually indicates that we've got a leaky gut or, or this impermeability? Or is that a bit of a leap as well? Well, I think, for example, the lactulose mannitol ratio, which is very commonly used, that's a valid test. Yeah. It's a good test. And there are other sucralose, there are other sugar molecules can be employed. And they are valid tests of this paracellular pathway. Which you cannot say because you've got an abnormal lactose mannitol or sucralose over test, that therefore bacteria are getting into the liver. Now that's that's where I have the problem, is, is jumping from that observation, which is absolutely well validated, it's been studied for years, it's a valid test, and then saying that this is the cause of the person's liver disease. That's that's the problem that I have, because that's the leap of faith. Yeah, yeah. It might be true, but you have to prove it directly. And one of the major challenges in human studies is the availability of accurate tests for the arrival of bacteria or bacterial products into the circulation, the phenomenon that we refer to as translocation. Yeah, yeah. That's very, very well measured in animal models. Because in animal models, you can open the animal's abdomen, you can remove lymph nodes, you can remove the spleen, you can take biopsies in the liver, you can count the number of bacteria they're getting through, and you make an accurate assessment. Of course, you can't do that in humans, yeah. except in occasional circumstances, where you're doing surgery for some other reason, for example. But so it's been much more difficult to measure bacterial translocation in man. We've no doubt that it occurs. Mm. Uh, but what we don't know is to what extent it occurs and what its clinical significance is, because a lot of bacteria get through, and of course, they're mopped up in the liver uh, and don't get into the systemic circulation. There's a lot of exciting possibilities here, but I think we we don't we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And then if we're thinking about um, tests related to the gut that might tell us a little bit about what's going on or give some sort of clinical indication, like you mentioned, um, you know, the, that people take a leap of faith with the lactulose mannitol test. Um, how else could we measure what's actually going on if someone experiences gut-related issues? Like what okay. tests would be valid? There are some actually some very good tests available. For example, um, measuring calprotectin or lactoferrin in stool is a very sensitive indicator of inflammation anywhere in the gut. And that's one that we commonly use to detect activity in, say, in ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Alpha-1 antitrypsin can also be measured in the stool, and th that does provide some measure of whether there's severe change in permeability to the extent that you're actually losing protein from the gut. Again, it's not, I actually did some work on that years ago. It's not a terribly sensitive and accurate test, but it will give you a reasonable idea as to what is going on. And of course, there are other markers of inflammation, like the C-reactive protein level or the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, which may also be helpful. And then, you know, there are a whole variety of tests to assess for absorption or malabsorption, which may also be very valuable. Yeah. And what nutrient uh, uh, status or, or are there any nutrients which you often see are related to gut issues? So if someone is low in, in a particular nutrient, do you does that give you any insight into that um, malabsorption rate? So what's commonly seen? Absolutely. That's a great question. So, for example, if I see somebody who's deficient in folic acid and low in iron, I begin to think of disease of the upper small intestine. Celiac disease would be a classic example. Yeah. On the other hand, if I see a patient who's got B12 deficiency and they do not have pernicious anemia, you begin to think of disease in the lower small intestine because that's where B12 is taken up. And you see that, for example, in patients with Crohn's disease, patients who've had surgeries in that area. And of course, you may see it in patients with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because the bacteria actually utilize the B12. So, so there, there are some examples of hints to you that, gee, if I'm seeing low folate and low iron, I should be thinking of proximal or small intestinal disease. If I'm seeing low B12 and perhaps loss of, a lot of loss of bilasters into the stool, you should begin to think of lower small intestinal disease. Yeah. Okay. And is this something that you think general practitioners are sort of across, or is it something that someone might get from a specialist like you who actually works in gastroenterology and, and um, related fields? That's a great question. In fact, as, as far as I know, in the UK right now, um, family doctors are encouraged to use calprotectin as a screening test for patient for inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah, nice. Because it's it's of its sensitivity and specificity. Now, there are some arguments about the cutoff value, but you know that's that's a small issue. But uh, it is um, it is an important issue, and uh, so some of these are being used in in general practice to screen for diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. Mm, mm, nice, Professor. Quickly, can we um, pivot or well, just uh, switch topics to talk about IBS or irritable bowel syndrome? Because this is something which feels like a lot of like I see a lot of clients and they're like my doctor's told me I have IBS and um and now I have to sort of figure out stuff from my diet as to um how to help but it's almost is it, am I right in thinking it's a condition that's diagnosed almost from exclusion criteria than than anything else it's yeah that's that's a, that's a crucial question um unfortunately that's often the way it's diagnosed uh, one of the things I was trying to advocate, or I do try to advocate, is to take a more positive approach. Yeah. 
And in fact, there are criteria, clinical criteria, uh, which have been developed over the years by the Rome Foundation, which should allow you to have to make a pretty confident diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome as long as at the same time you look out for signs of other diseases, yeah. like inflammatory bowel disease, like celiac disease, like cancer, etc. And that you can usually detect with, you know, if you maintain a fairly degree of suspicion in the right circumstance. So I would encourage a more positive approach to diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. And that's important because I've seen this in my own, unfortunately, I've been around a long time. And I've one of the nice things I've seen over the years is we've moved from a state where if you said to a patient that they had irritable bowel syndrome, they'd walk out of the office because they, they would feel they felt that you were telling them there was all in their imagination. Yeah. To a situation now where people would say to me, well, you know, Doc, I think I've got irritable bowel syndrome and I know what that means, uh, but I'd like to talk to you about it and just get some reassurance that that is actually the diagnosis. So it's been a sea change. Thanks to, I think, a lot of, of um, discussion in media, et cetera, about irritable bowel syndrome, the fact that it is a real entity, the fact that it has consequences, and the fact that we can, in many instances, we can do something about it. Yeah, nice. And so if we were to define it, what actually is it? So, so irritable, like the simplest way I regard irritable bowel syndrome, it's a syndrome where abdominal pain or discomfort in some way or other is linked to bowel function. So for example, you could have somebody who has irritable bowel syndrome who feels better when they have a bowel movement, or a person with irritable bowel syndrome who gets, gets worse pain when they need to have a bowel movement, or when they have a bowel movement and the irritable bowel syndrome, it leads to diarrhea, or they may have, as you know, some people may have constipation, some people may have diarrhea. Another symptom that's very common in irritable bowel syndrome is bloating and distension. It's, they're not included in the main definition, largely because of issues with translation into non-English languages, but I think they're an essential component. So it would be pain linked to bowel action plus bloating and distension. Yeah. And is there a time period with which um, is part of that diagnostic criteria? Yes. No, there is. There, there are several... Um, caveats in there so they they should have symptoms at least once a week and the symptoms should have been going on for at least three months with and should not have developed less than six months ago so that's very important because otherwise you you, you may make big mistakes because say somebody who developed irritable bowel time symptom symptoms last week they could actually have an obstruction from colon cancer yes so that's very so it's very important that you take those time scales into account when you're making the diagnosis so you know, we always teach our students and our trainees that, you know, be wary of this sudden onset of irritable bowel syndrome. That's a warning that mm. there may be something else going on. Yeah. Having said that, do gut issues, um, I mean, yes, they, you know, you mentioned that sort of sudden onset, but can we develop intolerances or sensitivities as we age or over time, like I, so for example, I have clients who come to me and they're like, you know, I used to feel fine when I had bread, but now I'm like constantly bloating or I feel like now I'm getting bloated. Like, is that, like, is that a common thing? Does, does things, do things change over time? So this is, this, this is a fascinating issue. This is a beautiful paper, beautiful, very elegant study from a group in, um, in Belgium, which is recently published in Nature, actually, it's, to say that a patient had irritable bowel, a, pa a paper on irritable bowel syndrome appeared in Nature is, is a major thing in itself. Uh, but um, 
But what they were looking at there was a a subsection of individuals with irritable bowel syndrome who have developed it quite suddenly, and usually in the context of some sort of enteric infection, it could be salmonella, campylobacter, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So-called post-infection irritable bowel syndrome. And what they showed very elegantly is that in these individuals, or at least in some of them, when that happens, they lose their tolerance to certain dietary antigens. So before that, they could tolerate a full diet. But after this event, they now become sensitized to certain foods which previously they tolerated. And when they're exposed to that food now, they develop a local allergic reaction, if you like, which leads to the activation of mast cells, the release, the release of mast cell proteases, which then activate primary sensory afferents, which lead to hypersensitivity and the symptoms that we recognize as irritable bowel syndrome. Now, that's just one study, but it's a fascinating example which can explain how somebody, you know, for 40 years of their life was perfectly well, then something happens and now they've got IBS symptoms and they can't tolerate certain foods. Mm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And that's, I guess it's that exposure to some other stressor that created the issue in the or an issue in the first place. But yes. then, so it exacerbates our response to those dietary antigens. And you've actually touched there on a central tenet, if you like, of irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. I very much regard, first of all, I regard irritable bowel syndrome as a disease of the gut-brain axis. That's fundamental. And then feeding into that are a variety of triggers, food, stress, infection, menstrual cycle in females, etc. So there are a whole variety of things which feed into that, which can be different in different individuals and which can trigger symptoms on the basis of this interaction between the gut-brain axis. But I think that's that's a fundamental part of it. And we're learning more about these, these triggers. We're learning that the microbiome, for example, may be relevant. I just mentioned the role of infection. Uh, we've learned a lot about food as a trigger recently, a whole variety of foods. And um, we're also beginning to understand more about how these may interact with the immune system and lead to the, and I presented some of that data at the, the meeting in, in the Gold Coast, uh, you know, can lead to the, the, the release of, of inflammatory markers, which can in turn provoke an, a local inflammatory response, which may actually spill over even into the systemic circulation. Yeah, interesting. And so with the gut-brain axis then, so are you saying that how what happens in the, um, or how we perceive stress can sort of exacerbate or um, change how we digest food and and the sort of implications, et cetera. Absolutely. And there are, you know, there, there are examples of this going back for decades of a variety of, if you like, experiments in humans shown, showing how profoundly you can affect their physiology through exposure to stress, either acute stress or chronic stress. So I always remember a study done by a, a 40 and now late colleague of mine in London where they got their, their volunteers to try to park cars in rush hour in London, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which was, if you like, a, a, an acute and chronic stress. You can imagine what that was like doing. And at the same time, they were measuring their motility and showing how severely disrupted it, their bowel motility was. And in patients with irritable bowel syndrome, it was even more disrupted. So they were even more sensitive to these stresses. So th- there, there was a time, you know, when I was kind of early in research, when there was a lot of work being done on stress 
whole variety of well-validated models of stress and shown how they disrupted motility, secretion, etc. Everything you can think of, gastric emptying, colon transit, all of these things were affected by stress and to a greater extent in patients with irritable bowel syndrome, as if their, their clock had been wound up to be much more sensitive to, to stress. Yes, so interesting. Um, Professor, quickly, what are there people who are more at risk of IBS than others in terms of, so what are general patterns in, in the population that you see? Now, this is, has been really uh, given a lot more credence recently with the publication of a very large international survey, which I was privileged to be a part of, which for the first time attempted to provide a global picture of IBS. Now, it's not complete. Not every country in the world was involved for logistical reasons, but there were there were representative countries from all, all continents, uh, less representation from Africa than we would have liked, but still there was representation. And what it showed clearly is that females are twice as likely to develop IBS than males, that IBS is much more common in younger people in, say, up to the age of 40, and less common in those who are over 65 or over 60. Uh, so there are two very important risk factors which seem to be universal. There was a debate about whether there were some countries where it was actually more common in males, but that turned out to be that males had more access to healthcare than females, which is reflected inequities in society rather than actual changes in, changes in, in, um, in prevalence or differences in prevalence, I should say. Uh, but um, And then the other risk factors that have been identified, I mentioned one, which was this uh, infection. About 10%, about 10% of individuals who get a, um, an infection, as there was Campylobacter, Salmonella, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they will go on to develop irritable bowel syndrome and will have it for many years. It's much more likely to occur with a bacterial or protozoal infection than it is with a virus infection, which is interesting because uh, virus infections tend to be shorter in duration and tend to evoke less of an inflammatory response, which may be important. The other very important core factor which came up from these post-infection studies was that, you know, who are individuals, if you, if 10 people got Campylobacter, and this has been shown because there have been big outbreaks of, of food poisoning. So, you know, let's say 100 people get food poisoning, 10 of them are going to develop IBS. Well, what are the features of those 10? They're more likely to be female. They're more likely to have had a more severe infection. Mm -hmm. And they're much more likely at that time to have had depression anxiety, or stressful life events. So here again, we see this interaction between the brain and the gut. I'm not saying that everybody who's got IBS is depressed or anxious, but if you have depression or anxiety and you're at risk for IBS and you're exposed to a risk factor, you're much more likely to get it and more likely to have severe symptoms. Okay, interesting. What is the, is the, uh, the fact that you're female, is it some sort of interaction with estrogen or, I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind. What explanatory factors do we know sort of describe that? I have to admit that we don't know. It's, and this is an underexplored area. There are differences that have been shown in the way the brain perceives the gut between males and females. That may be part of the explanation. And there, of course, are hormonal factors which may, be, which may kick in. Um, but I think don't think we have a complete answer on that. It's obviously a very important question. Yeah. Okay. And and is the same set of age like why younger people are more likely to experience it than older people? Yes, that's that also is not. You know, there there are some physiological changes that occur with aging in terms of motility and 
etc., which might explain it. But we don't know the answer for that either. But it is very striking that if you look at that data from the international um, survey, the highest incidence is like is like the twenty to forty group. It's a little bit. It falls off a little bit, a little bit lower in the 40 to 60, but it really falls off in the over 60 group. Mm, so interesting. Um, and as you say, there's just a, a lot of other areas or more sort of um, areas that can be explored, I suppose, moving forward with regards to clearly understanding that. Um, Professor Quickly, the low FODMAP diet as a clinician, this is one that I use um, almost all of the time when I speak to people about gut-related um, or IBS-type issues. Can you sort of describe to the listeners what that is and why it is, and, and actually how successful is it in resolving oh, yeah. IBS? So the low FODMAP diet arose from the concept that we as humans have a limited capacity to digest certain carbohydrates in particular. In other words, we have, we have a certain capacity and above that we can't digest them. So they end up going to the colon where they're digested with bacteria who are delight, delighted to get them. And in, in, in metabolizing these molecules, they produce short chain fatty acids and they produce gas, which of course leads to IBS type symptoms. So that's the hypothesis. And the group in Adelaide, or not Adelaide, but in Melbourne, who really, um, Pioneer this um, came up with this these particular uh, these foods these the FODMAPs uh, which they found were particularly likely to cause symptoms in this patient population and since then there've been numerous clinical trials which have validated their, their hypothesis so that's the general concept and the idea is that by putting people on a low FODMAP diet and eliminating these particular foods then you can minimize symptoms and that actually does happen. Now, the um, how effective is it? In the, the initial study suggested that it is about 70% plus effective. I think more recently would suggest that it's about 50% effective, which is pretty good in a disorder where, you know, previously we didn't have very effective treatment. So it's become a very important part of the of the um, evaluation, not of the but of the management of, of irritable bowel syndrome, and it's quite widely applied everywhere now. You do have a paper that discusses some sort of implications of long-term low FODMAP diets. And so what is some of the issues or the considerations around that, Professor? Okay, so the low FODMAP diet is quite restrictive. And it, but the idea is that if you do it properly under dietitian control, uh, you shouldn't maintain a full low FODMAP diet indefinitely. You should actually gradually reintroduce as a so-called reintroduction phase and then like a stabilization phase. So you should gradually reintroduce things and, and, and broaden your diet with time. The problems with the continued low FODMAP diet would be other nutritional consequences because a lot of the things that you're eliminating would be regarded as quote-unquote healthy foods. The second thing is that, and this has been a fairly consistent observation, is that low FODMAP diet eliminates a lot of the nutrients that form the basis for the diet of or bacteria, in particular bifidobacteria. So they tend to decrease. So that's an issue. The third issue, which is important, is that very important in using any diet in IBS is that we now know that there is a higher prevalence of eating disorders among patients with IBS. And that by imposing very strict diets, you may reinforce abnormal eating patterns and perhaps exacerbate them. So that's another thing to, to be looking out for. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the as I sort of uh, 
understand it with that sort of food reintroduction, like that, that, you know, when I see a client and they've got um, severe IBS or, you know, bad gut issues, and then we put them on the FODMAP approach, um, I generally start with that broad, hey, try to lower overall load. But exactly. then you'll know soon enough what foods are actually triggering your symptoms and then sort of reintroduce slowly. Are there foods or should people expect to be able to include all of these foods sort of if they do it properly or for some people are they always going to react to a certain food group like how does that look yes i think that's absolutely true i think there people got this is going to be very individualized but people are going to find out that there are certain foods that are complete no-nos for them Mm. and you know some of those that tend to prop up quite commonly i'll say the frog dance which of course is very common in wheat uh, onions and garlic also t- t- tend to, to crop up very frequently, but you know it's going to be different for everybody. But um, well, they, you'll find that out in the reintroduction phase, and that's that's the part which is like which is usually forgotten. That you know people read about the low fat diet or get a handout or whatever, and they just start and there's no supervision, and then that's when people get get into trouble. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned that a lot of these foods removed are ones which might feed our um, bifidobacterium. So would we, uh, clinically speaking, suggest that they take a probiotic alongside a low FODMAP diet? Or for some, is that not a good idea? Do we? Is there a, a recommendation around that? Well, no, there, there actually is data. There's a nice study from a group in London um, showing that uh, if you do that, if you give a probiotic, you actually can restore the bifidobacterium numbers, and that will have no effect on the on the clinical response. In other words, it won't impair the clinical response in any way. There have also been studies done where people compare the low FODMAP diet to a prebiotic, which is very interesting because a prebiotic, strictly speaking, you'd expect to have the opposite effect. And they actually show that a prebiotic, I think it was an, an oligofructose, I can't remember now precisely, uh, had, was just as beneficial as the low FODMAP diet, and uh, but did not impair the, the bifidobacterial population. Interesting. Would you expect that to be an individual response um, or a more general sort of finding for a lot of people with these gut issues? There, there, is, there is actually some data to suggest that individual responses might be predicted by your baseline microbiome. So that's a very interesting concept. It's not been applied very generally. But I think that's very interesting. You might be able to select those who might respond to a low FODMAP diet. Now, that's not been done for prebiotics and probiotics, but certainly you, 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 might, you might be able to predict who is going to respond to a low FODMAP diet by studying their baseline microbiome and thereby select people who are responders and not expose them to a diet that's not going to work for them. Yeah, okay. No, that makes sense. Um, Professor, quickly, on probiotics, it is such a minefield out there when you go to a pharmacy and even the supermarket and you can see on the shelves all of these different uh, probiotic um, capsules, is it a strain that we are looking for? Is it a, a group we are looking for? So what should we be looking for if we're thinking specifically IBS and the potential for a probiotic to help us? Okay. So you've asked probably about 10 very difficult questions there in all in one tells you. <laughs> So let's start with the basics. So when you're buying a probiotic, you must be sure there's a probiotic. And and the definition of probiotic still refers to live microorganisms, which when taken an adequate amount, confer a health benefit to the host. So let's parse that a little bit. So it should be live. 
that means that the producer, the seller, should be able to guarantee that there are live organisms at a reasonable count for the shelf life of that particular product. And I can tell you that most products don't do that. So even at first base, they can't tell you that. Secondly, they should be able to tell you exactly what's in there and what isn't in there. And for me, nowadays, that means that the, the probiotic or probiotic cocktail, if there is, is a cocktail, should be characterized at genome level. So you know exactly what the organism is and that it's not anything else. That it's not a, it, there, there was a few years ago, somebody took a look at a lot of probiotics off the shelf somewhere in the US and found that some of them even contain pathogens. So quality control is an enormous issue here. So there are some basics in quality control that I would insist on. First of all, characterization of your strains at genome level so that you can reproducibly check every batch. Secondly, viability at the level that's thought to be effective for the shelf life of the, of the particular strain. And thirdly, uh, pre-clinical studies demonstrating what is the range of what are the range of, of properties of, of mechanisms of action of that probiotic? Is it anti-inflammatory? Uh, does it produce gas? Does it uh, interact with your immune system? You know, does it have metabolic effects? So you go on, so there should be a very thorough characterization of the probiotic and also a thorough characterization of its viability and of its safety before it ever arrives on the shelf. And I will venture to guess that. 90% of so-called probiotic products that are out there do not meet those basic criteria. So that's the first thing. So, so if, let's assume that we've, we've, we have a well-characterized probiotic that is viable, which has been studied and demonstrated to have certain effects, and which has been shown to be safe. Let's make those assumptions. So what else do we need to show? We need to show that it actually is effective. And that means clinical studies in the disease that you're interested in, which in this case is irritable bowel syndrome. Now, the good thing is there actually are quite a few studies of probiotics in irritable bowel syndrome, and there are studies which show that some are effective and some are not. But there are, you know, there are um, reviews out there, systematic reviews, meta-analysis, et cetera, which can guide, guide you in terms of selecting probiotics for irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. And are we looking at particular strains or are we looking at groups that's that's a very important there now there are some probiotic effects which may which may apply to a whole species uh, but there are other but there are certainly others that are that are very strain specific and in general the data would suggest that bifidobacteria you know, that's that's a, a species um bifidobacteria in general seem to be more effective in ibs and some bifidobacteria are more effective than others that's just a general general observation um but unfortunately we don't have many head-to-head -head studies you know where they've compared different strains and species at different doses etc we have very few of those studies okay so it might be a trial and error in within that for someone to sort of take something and, and notice an effect or not and then and then depending on that either continue to take or uh or switch out and try another so what I would say to the consumer is, you know, first of all, try to have as much confidence as you can in the quality of the product that you're buying for the criteria that I mentioned, the viability, the characterization, et cetera, et cetera, the safety. And then try and take a product which has some evidence that is effective in, in, in earthly balance and such a certain bifidobacteria. That's, just, that's I think, as, as far as you can go at the moment. Uh, now, there are ones that I prefer 
which may or may not be available for you in, in New Zealand. But um, there are some that I believe have good quality clinical trials, which have which support their use in irritable bowel syndrome. And they can be taken. And if you don't, if you're not seeing a benefit within four weeks, then as you say, try something else. Okay. And is that the one that you presented at the Congress, the Bifidin? I'm going to get the number wrong. 3624. Exactly. That's one that I worked with for, for many years. And of course, obviously, I've got a particular bias towards that, but um, that, that's one that, that we, we feel is effective. Yeah, well, it's funny you say you have a bias because if if you, a clinician and research expert in the field, has a bias towards something, then that is likely going to um, influence my decision to look out for it because you are the expert in that. So, um, yeah. Um, Professor, quickly, now outside of the FODMAP diet, uh, psyllium husk is another sort of nutritional therapy that is often used for both constipation and diarrhea dominant IBS um one uh well actually how does that help both of these seemingly contradictory conditions so and that's often tricky to explain to patients um, because they, they can't say you can't work for both surely but it does so how it works basically is very simple is that um and we actually studied this several years ago um is that psyllium attracts is a water attractant so in somebody who's got diarrhea it will tend to take up some of that extra fluid if you like and make the stool a little bit bulkier in the person with constipation it again attracts fluid makes the stool a little bit softer and easier to pass so and it has other effects as well but um that would be putting it simply um, yeah. but it's largely through, through its ability the other thing of course is with psyllium like because it acts as a prebiotic as well, it's going to increase your your bacteria and therefore increase the bacterial load, which in turn may help to to make the stool easier to pass. Yeah. Okay. And what is the recommendation around using psyllium as a therapy for IBS? I use it a lot. I probably use it more in IBS for constipation. We use it as a first line therapy in constipation. Uh, there are a variety of preparations of psyllium out there, which tend to be quite palatable. And we don't seem to run into problems with patient acceptance or tolerance of them. Um, so I, I certainly do recommend it. Yeah. And is it, I'm pretty sure I saw a study that used seven grams of psyllium a day and 700 mils of water or something like that. So is it, do we have to be particular about the number of times we use it in a day or is it with every meal? Yeah, it, it's, it depends on what preparation you use. Some of them you do need to take water with. Sometimes some it's not so particular. Uh, I I wouldn't go overboard with it certainly, but I I tend to tell people to take it once a day and maybe take you know one or two doses. The preparations we use here tend to be they use scoops rather than than. I know there are preparations out there which are based on tablets of other forms, but the ones we use tend to be in the sachet form. Yeah. So they, that's fairly easy to regulate. Yeah, for sure. And then if someone does have IBS and they are looking at a FODMAP diet or they're looking at using psyllium husk or, or maybe doing a bit of both, how long do they or should they expect to be on this regime for before they um, look at progressing off? Or is, you know, once you have to take psyllium for constipation, you just have to continue to take it? Like what is the... You mean... How long do you wait until you decide that it's working or not? Or how long do you keep it going 
yeah how long do you keep it going like because it because psyllium works for a lot of people that I I talk to anyway but then do they have to continue to take it until like till the end of their days or yeah yeah I think what's very important there is the history so is this constipation which they just happened because they traveled or is something that's been going on for years if it's been going on for years my prediction is that they're going to need it for a long time yeah yeah so I think the history leading up to their encounter with you is going to be very important in terms of predicting how long they're going to need to use it. Okay, no, that makes sense. And what other therapy is out there outside of psyllium and uh, a lower FODMAP sort of diet for people with IBS? So is there anything else that they can look at to help resolve some of their symptoms? Well, there are a whole variety of approaches which are out there, um, which I suppose reflects that we don't have great treatments. There are a whole variety of prescription medications to treat either diarrhea or constipation. There are a variety of agents to treat pain like antispasmodics. And then there are what you might call a whole variety of mind-body interventions like hypnotherapy, behavioral therapy, yoga, et cetera, which have also been shown to be effective. And I think they're very interesting and and are are now supported by high-quality randomized controlled trials and undergoing quite a renaissance in the management of irritable bowel syndrome. And some of them are available now through apps. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, and that makes perfect sense, right? Because if a stressful situation exacerbates your gut-related issues, learning how to manage your stress will or should help sort of resolve some of that stuff. Right. Yeah, nice. Nice. Um, Dr. Quickly, is there, you know, what are you excited about in this field? Like what's new and fresh and, and what are you working on right now? So what I think is new and exciting is the openness of people to look at a variety of possibilities. And for example, I'm now struck again at this late hour of my life uh, at how important the brain aspects of this are. And certainly new imaging techniques have taught us that brain appreciation of gut events is altered in IBS. And I think we need to learn a lot more about that. And I think the more we understand that IBS is a heterogeneous disorder, and the more we're prepared to accept that different triggers, different factors are relevant to different people, then I think we'll begin to make make progress. I'm interested in diet and how it interacts with the microbiome. I'm interested in the microbiome and how it interacts with not just the immune system, but even with the brain. I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about that in the years to come. That's nice. Awesome. Professor Quigley, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And um, I will link to your um, research publications, the page with which and you've, got, you've done, got such a history of uh, work or body of work in this field, which um, interested people can go and, and um, search out and um, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, team. Hopefully you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed talking to him. And as I said, links to Dr. Quigley can be found in the show notes. Next week on the podcast, I have a good old chat to Dr. Michael Twyman, who is a quantum physician and is all into functional medicine and tactics and tools to help support your cardiovascular health. You will absolutely love this, because I certainly did. 
Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can book a one-on-one consult with me, sign up to one of my meal plans, or join my recipe portal access, where for 12 bucks a month, you get access to my recipe portal, you get to connect one-on-one with me via our online messaging system. You become part of my real food community where we do regular Facebook Lives and updates and you get my weekly email. I mean, it's all just pretty awesome, to be honest, but maybe I'm just a bit biased. Anyway, you guys have a great week. See you next week.